And when there was a need to raise money, whether it was for churches and schools or hospitals or a family of a miner killed in a mining accident, well, Nellie would head downtown for the saloons or the brothels with her hat turned upside down and she always left with a hat full of money. The source of those donations never bothered her. She said one time, whether the money comes from an upstanding citizen or a member of an outlaw faction makes no difference to me, and the money doesn't know the difference either. In 1874, Nellie joins a party of 200 Nevada miners headed for the Cassiar Mountains in northern British Columbia, near the border of the Yukon. The region is practically unknown and all but inaccessible, but the miners, including Nellie, the only female, reach their destination and strike gold on the upper reaches of the Stikine River and along its major tributary, Dease Creek. It's only fall when winter comes to the Cassiars. The miners are caught unprepared for the heavy snowfalls and severe cold. As their supplies dwindle, dozens begin falling ill with scurvy. Their beloved Nellie is not among them. She left earlier for a vacation in Victoria on Vancouver Island. When word reaches Victoria, the miners are entrapped by snow and ice and suffering terribly. Nellie purchases 2,000 pounds of supplies, including plenty of lime juice, hires six men, and heads for Dease Creek. At Wrangell, Alaska, U.S. Customs officers try to dissuade her from what they term a mad trip. But Nellie pushes on. When the commander of Fort Wrangell hears that a woman is headed into the Cassiars, he dispatches a lieutenant with a squad of soldiers to rescue her. They don't catch up with Nellie until high up on the Stikine River. Nearly exhausted and suffering greatly from the cold, the soldiers find Nellie camped comfortably on the ice of this frozen Stikine. The lieutenant says she is cooking her evening meal by the heat of a wood fire and humming a lively air. The soldiers greatly accept her offer of hot coffee and food and return without her. The winter weather is so severe that people in coastal settlements think Nellie must have died. Here again is Jane Baker. There was a small avalanche and Nellie's tent was buried 10 feet deep in the snow. Now, when I heard about this, I wondered how did she figure out how to get out of there? Well, if you spit, your spit will go down. So what she did was spit and climb the opposite directions, and she, and she climbed out of the hole. She dug herself up out of it. After 77 days on the trail and digging herself out of a snowslide, Nellie reaches Dease Creek. Upon hearing of Nellie's trek, a newspaper called it an extraordinary feat by an indomitable female who possesses all the vivacity as well as the push and energy inherent to her race. With lime juice and good food, Nellie nurses every one of the 200 snowed-in miners back to good health. She is called the Angel of the Cassiars. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Nellie Cashman here on Our American Stories. You're the angel 
This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with the story of Nellie Cashman. Nellie stays in British Columbia for another three years, operating her businesses and raising money to build St. Joseph's Hospital in Victoria. In 1878, Nellie returns to San Francisco to visit her mother in the Cunninghams. Fanny and her husband now have three boys and two girls who love their Aunt Nell and are fascinated by her many adventures. A new mining strike soon sends Nellie to Tucson in Arizona Territory. She opens the Delmonico Restaurant, the first business in Tucson owned by a woman. But in 1880, she heads for the new silver strike at Tombstone. She takes over operation of the Russ House Hotel and within weeks becomes part owner. One of the prospectors she feeds for free in grub stakes is Edward Doheny, who later becomes one of America's great oil men. Not long after Nellie begins operating the Russ uh, House Hotel, her sister's husband dies of tuberculosis. Nellie rushes to San Francisco and brings Fanny and her children to Tombstone to live in a home immediately behind the Russ House. In 1883, Fanny dies of tuberculosis, and Aunt Nell finishes the job of rearing the Cunningham children. When Nellie arrives in Tombstone, there is no Catholic church. Here again is Marshall Trimble. In 1880, there was an article in the Tombstone Epitaph that said, Nellie Cashman, the irrepressible started out yesterday to raise funds for the building of a Catholic church. We don't know what success attended her first effort, but bet there is going to be a Catholic church and tombstone before many more days if Nellie has to build it herself. She convinces the owners of the Crystal Palace Saloon, one of the owners is Wyatt Earp, to allow Sunday services to be held there until a church is built. Nellie leads the way in fundraising for what becomes the Sacred Heart Church. Nellie also helps build the first school in Tombstone and the first non-military hospital in Arizona, St. Mary's in Tucson. She also establishes a fund for prospectors injured in mining accidents and serves as treasurer of Tombstone's chapter of the Land League of Ireland. Nellie becomes one of the most influential and respected figures in Tombstone. Here again is Jane Baker. During the time she was raising those kids in Tombstone, the gunfight at the OK Corral happened, and Nellie knew all of those players, Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, all his brothers. She knew the mayor of Tombstone named John Clum, who thought she was absolutely wonderful and wrote uh, glowing reports of her. John Clum, the publisher of the Tombstone Epitaph and Tombstone's first mayor, said of Nellie, her frank manner, her self-reliant spirit, and her emphatic and fascinating Celtic brogue impressed me very much and indicated that she was a woman of strong character and marked individuality. Here's Marshall Trimble with another story exemplifying Nellie's servant's heart. During the Christmas season of 1883 in Bisbee, five men pulled a robbery, killing four people, 
including a pregnant woman. They were caught, tried, and convicted, and sentenced to hang. Nellie took it upon herself to be their mother confessor. And just before the hanging, an entrepreneur had built a grandstand outside the high walls of the Tombstone Courthouse and was selling tickets to watch the hanging. The outlaws pleaded with Nellie not to let their hanging become a public spectacle. So, the night before the event, Nellie and some friends arrived, late, late in the evening, with tools in hand, and they tore it down. After the five men were hanged, the authorities had planned to donate their bodies to medical science. But the condemned men protested to Nellie, so she saw to it that they were given a proper burial and hired a guard to protect their graves for several days. One day, a dying Mexican stumbles in a tombstone and collapses at the entrance to the Russ house. Nellie has him carried inside and put on a bed. Before he dies, he mutters to her, Mule, go to Mule. Gold nuggets are found in his pockets. Nellie and some 20 tombstone miners are soon exploring the desert inland from Mule in Baja, California. The party runs out of water, and several of the men are on the verge of death from dehydration. The Phoenix Herald newspaper reports that Nellie and two others have died of thirst. Actually, Nellie is in better shape than any of the men. She volunteers to go off on her own, assuring her fellow prospectors a good angel will guide her to water. She crosses miles of scorching desert and miraculously comes upon an isolated mission. Not pausing to rest, she organizes a rescue party and helps drive burrows loaded with goatskin sacks of water back to the miners. She arrives just in the nick of time. In 1895, at the age of 50, Nellie is still going strong when she arrives in Tucson. A newspaper reports, Yesterday, Tucson was visited by one of the most extraordinary women in America, Nellie Cashman, whose name and face have been familiar to every important mining camp or district on the coast for more than 20 years. She rode into the town from Casa Grande on horseback, a jaunt that would nearly have prostrated the average man with fatigue. She showed no sign of weariness and went about town in that calm, business-like manner that belongs particularly to her. When news of the great strike in the Klondike reaches the States, Nellie is off for the far north immediately. She arrives in Dai, Alaska during March 1898 and becomes one of the first women to take the steep Chilkoot Pass Trail. At the summit on the Canadian border, the Mounties required each stampeder to pack 2,000 pounds of supplies or they wouldn't let them in. I guess he didn't want American citizens to perish on Canadian soil. Well, 54-year-old Nellie had to make several trips up the snowpack trail, but she was able to pass inspection. And then while waiting for the ice to thaw, she built a raft and then floated 500 miles down the Yukon River to reach Dawson, braving a series of fierce rapids along the way. Nellie soon opens a restaurant and a grocery store, which includes a small library that becomes known as the Prospector's Haven of Rest. A newspaper reports, her entrance into a saloon or dance hall is the signal for every man in the place to stand. Nellie has always done well, 
but she really strikes it rich in the Klondike. Her claim on Bonanza Creek pays her more than $100,000, equivalent to $3 million in today's money. Nellie continues living and prospecting in the Yukon and Alaska for another 25 years. She becomes an expert musher, more than once driving teams of dogs through the snow for hundreds of miles. Here's Marshall. In 1923, at the age of 78, she mushed a dog sled team 350 miles in just 17 days. Newspapers all over Alaska carried the story of that intrepid lady named Nellie Cashman. During the fall of 1924, her fabled health finally begins to fail. She dies at age 79 in January 1925 in St. Joseph's Hospital, which she had helped build nearly 50 years earlier. Nellie was single all her life. She had several proposals. She was a very pretty woman, but she never married. And when asked if she ever feared for her safety, being the only woman among so many rough-hewn men, she replied sweetly, If you act like a lady, men will always treat you like one. Shortly before she dies, a reporter asks her if she ever feared for her virtue while living in all-male mining camps or prospecting on wild frontiers. She replies, Bless your soul, no. I never have had a word said to me out of the way. The boys would sure see to it that anyone who ever offered to insult me could never be able to repeat the offense. And thanks to Roger McGrath for that storytelling, and he's told so many good ones here on this show. Also thanks to Greg Hengler. And Roger is a professor in Southern California, and he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. That's Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Nellie Cashman's story, and it's a remarkable one, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show. Love, faith, work, business, history, sports, and courage, and all these stories from all over the country. And this one comes from a slightly unexpected place, Somalia, 1993. American forces were protecting the humanitarian aid effort in the midst of a famine and civil war. During a mission to capture several of the Somali warlords' top lieutenants, two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. The ground task force was cobbled together to secure the first crash site, but there weren't any resources left for the second. Circling overhead, two Delta snipers, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart, saw how desperate the situation was. An armed force of hundreds converged on the crash site and there were no doubts about what an angry mob would do to a downed American flight crew. 
So these two men asked higher headquarters for permission to insert into that crash site. This request was crazy, and it was denied. With the mob getting closer, Gordon and Shugart asked again, and again they were denied. One more time they asked, and finally, finally they got the green light. The two men fought through a hundred meter maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew of Super 6-4. They fired their rifles and pistols with deadly accuracy, delaying a mob that they knew they had no chance against. Running out of ammo, Gordon and Shugart were killed in action. But because of them, because of their efforts, the pilot Michael Durant eventually made it home alive. Gordon and Shugart earned the Medal of Honor and set the highest standard for love for America fighting men. But where does that leave the families of this hero? What about those kids? Well, Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen, she wrote this letter, this remarkable letter, for their children, then aged six and three. My dearest Ian and Brittany, I hope that in the final moments of your father's life, his last thoughts were not of us. As he lay dying, I wanted him to think only of the mission to which he pledged himself. As you grow older, if I can show you the love and responsibility he felt for his family, you will understand my feelings. I did not want him to think of me or of you because I didn't want his heart to break. Children were meant to have someone responsible for them. No father ever took that more seriously than your dad. Responsibility was a natural part of him, an easy path to follow. Each day after work, his truck pulled into our driveway. I watched the two of you run to him, feet pounding across the painted boards of our porch, yelling, Daddy. Every day I saw his face when he saw you. You were the center of his life. Ian, when you turned one year old, your father was beside himself with excitement, baking you a cake in the shape of a train. On your last birthday, Brittany, he sent you a handmade birthday card from Somalia. But your father had two families. One was us, and the other was his comrades. He was true to both. He loved his job. Quiet and serious adventure filled some part of him I could never fully know. After his death, one of his comrades told me that on a foreign mission, your dad led his men across a snow-covered ridge that began to collapse. Racing across a yawning crevice to safety, he grinned wildly and yelled, Wasn't that great? You will hear many times about how your father died. You will read what the President of the United States said when he awarded the Medal of Honor. Gary Gordon died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. But you may still ask why. You may ask how he could have been devoted to two families so equally. Dying for one, but leaving the other. For your father, there was no hard choices in life. Once he committed to something, the way was clear. He chose to be a husband and a father, and never wavered in those roles. He chose the military. And I shall not fail those with whom I serve became his simple religion. When his other family needed him, he did not hesitate, as he would not have hesitated for us. It may not have been the best thing for us, but it was the right thing for your dad. 
There are times now when the image of him coming home comes back to me. I see him scoop you up, Ian, and I see you, Brittany, bury your head in his chest. I dread the day when you stop talking and asking about him, when he seems so long ago. So now I must take the responsibility for keeping his life entwined with yours. It's a responsibility I never wanted. But I know what your father would say. Nothing you can do about it, Carmen. Just keep going. Those times when the crying came as I stood at the kitchen counter were never long enough. You came in the front door, Brittany, saying, Mommy, you sad. You miss Daddy. You reminded me I had to keep going. The ceremonies honoring your dad were hard. When they put his photo in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon, I thought, can this be all that is left? A picture? Then General Sullivan read from the letter General Sherman wrote to General Grant after the Civil War. Words so tender that we all broke down. Throughout the war, you were always in my mind. I always knew if I were in trouble and you were still alive, you would come to my assistance. One night, before either of you were born, your dad and I had a funny little talk about dying. I teased that I would not know where to bury him. Very quietly, he said, a poem in my uniform. Your dad never really liked to wear his uniform. And a poem, Maine, was far away from us. Only after he was laid to rest in a tiny flag-filled graveyard in Lincoln, Maine, did I understand. His parents, bearing their only son, could come tomorrow and the day after that. You and I would not have to pass his grave on the way to the grocery store, to Little League games, to ballet recitals. Our lives would go on. And to the men he loved and died for, the uniform was a silent salute, a final repeat of his vows. Once again, he had taken care of all of us. On a spring afternoon, a soldier from your dad's unit brought me the things from his military locker. At the bottom of a cardboard box beneath his boots, I found a letter. Written on a small, ruled tablet, it was his voice. Quiet but confident in the words he wanted us to have if something should happen to him. I'll save it for you. But so much of him is already inside you both. Let it grow with you. Choose your own responsibilities in life, but always, always follow your heart. Your dad will be watching over you, just as he always did. Love, Mom. And what a beautiful letter from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon's bride, Carmen. And always we're stunned and pretty staggered by the beauty in the writing of so many soldiers in this country and their families. Jim Carroll's war letters, we've spent a lot of time on them. It's some of the best writing in America, folks. It comes from you. It comes from the people of this country. We're beautiful people. I wanted to share another piece of writing, this one from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon himself. This was a letter he crafted to his bride in the event of his death. And soldiers in conflict have a habit of doing this. They know what could happen. Here's that letter. Quote, I'm so very lucky to have you as a wife. I know you have the ability to go far and shall as long as you believe. 
It takes longer to build that foundation because the bricks break off now and again. Life's funny sometimes. The key is to keep a sense of humor. Don't take it seriously. Enjoy it. The real secret to life is already inside us. Just dig a little deeper. And my goodness, what beautiful words for anybody to live by. And as always, a call out to all of our fighting men, those who came before, those that will come after, their courage and self-sacrifice, always in order. And we love to share these stories, stories of courage, love, loss, and faith, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. Few stories are as compelling, as complex, or as mystifying as that of Benedict Arnold. He was both the greatest of heroes and the darkest of villains. And on this day in 1741, Benedict Arnold was born. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Benedict Arnold is hands down America's most infamous turncoat. He has been dead for over 200 years, and his name is still shorthand for traitor as we've seen exemplified in movies like Grumpier Old Men. You traitor! You Benedict Arnold! In spite of his ultimate deception, Benedict Arnold remains one of the most gifted generals America has ever known. Ironically, if it had not been for his prowess and military genius, America might never have been victorious in the Revolutionary War. In May of 1775, Arnold led an attack on the remote British outpost at Fort Ticonderoga. Quick-tempered and strong-willed, Arnold joined forces and immediately clashed with Ethan Allen, the leader of a small militia of frontiersmen known as the Green Mountain Boys. The fort is captured thanks mostly to Benedict Arnold that forces the British to abandon Boston. Both Allen and Arnold wrote extensive reports about the events to the colonial committees, but they only accepted Allen's glorified version that barely mentions Arnold. This would be the beginning of a pattern in Arnold's military career that would repeat itself. Arnold is later given the impossible task of defending New York's Lake Champlain from attack. He constructs the first American naval fleet of 15 small war vessels to engage the British at Valcour Island in October of 1776. Although he was not victorious, his efforts not only established the American Navy, but severely delayed the advancement of the world's finest navy into American territory, allowing Washington's army time to rebuild and resupply. 
In spite of his aggressive and heroic achievements, the Continental Congress refused to recognize Arnold, and he was passed over for promotion in favor of junior officers with far less military achievement. George Washington, who was Arnold's close friend and one of the few men who came to his defense, took issue with the Continental Congress's decision, rebuking them for making political rather than strategic military promotions. Here's Washington biographer Adrian Harrison. Washington appreciates the personal sacrifice that Arnold made and the leadership that he used. He sees Arnold's pain, and Washington has really no love for the Continental Congress either. They're not doing a great job supplying him. In September of 1777, Arnold was placed under the command of Horatio Gates at Saratoga in upstate New York. Gates, while never coming within a mile of the fighting, held Arnold back, confining him to his tent, and refused reinforcements. Defying Gates' orders, Arnold seized a horse and rallied the Americans to victory and took a bullet to the leg and barely survived after being crushed by his own horse. However, it is this shot that will change the course of history and nearly alter the course of independence. Here's Arnold biographer Willard Randall. When the battle was over, his second-in-command said, Sir, where are you hit? And Arnold said, It's my leg. I wish it had been my heart. And I do, too. I wish it had been his heart, because if he had died at that moment, he would have been the great hero of the revolution. The battles of Saratoga are considered by many historians to be one of the top 15 most decisive battles in world history because it becomes the impetus for France to join the Americans against Britain, reinvigorating Washington's Continental Army and providing much needed supplies and support, saving the revolution once again. Here's historian Paul Hutton. Carried from the battlefield, terribly wounded, Arnold was immediately placed under arrest for having disobeyed orders. But the day is won. It's clear to everyone on the battlefield that Benedict Arnold has won the day. Clear to everyone except Horatio Gates. He denies Arnold credit. He accepts credit for America's greatest victory. General Washington steps in and entrusts the newly reclaimed city of Philadelphia to Arnold. He is now the city's military governor. Away from the battlefield, Arnold takes full advantage of his position, living opulently while using and abusing his position running shady business deals in a lively black market. He has served, he has been wounded severely, and so he starts as a governor to take what he thinks is his due. It is here in April 1779 where the 38-year-old Arnold meets and marries a beautiful, flirtatious, and intense 18-year-old from a very wealthy loyalist family. Her name is Peggy Shippen. Here's Arnold historian William Stanley. Arnold was to the British what Rama was to the English, what Patton was to the German. In other words, a general who could defeat them. The British wanted Arnold out of there. Without Arnold, they'd win. But 
Arnold's shady side deals are exposed by the press. Once again, Arnold faces a slight against his honor. With an impending court-martial and a public rebuke from General Washington, Arnold and his young bride begin exploring options for disaffection. Despite his reprimand, Washington wants to give his brilliant general a field position of honor. But after Arnold suspiciously lobbies strongly for a non-field position at West Point, in the fall of 1780, Washington makes him the commander of the strategic American stronghold known as the Key to the Continent, a fort on the front lines that bears his own name, Fort Arnold. West Point becomes Arnold's key negotiating resource. Many historians claim he even conspired to turn over General George Washington himself. Here's former superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Lieutenant General Dave Palmer. West Point was not just a strategic spot. West Point was the strategic spot in the American Revolution. Both sides, British and Americans, agreed on one thing that if the British could ever capture the line of the Hudson, they would probably win the war. It doesn't take long for Arnold's secret plot to be unearthed, causing him to flee West Point for a British warship stationed on the Hudson. Ironically, at this same hour, General Washington was en route to West Point to feast with his trusted friend. Arnold's betrayal is so unexpected and cuts General Washington so deeply that after failing to capture Benedict Arnold, Washington proclaimed, Arnold has betrayed me. Whom can we trust now? Safely behind British lines, Benedict Arnold receives his 20,000 pounds ransom payment and a commission as Brigadier General of 1,600 troops in His Majesty's Army. Benjamin Franklin remarked, Judas sold only one man, Arnold, three million. Benedict Arnold's treason united the 13 colonies and increased their enlistments and re-enlistments in ways that neither he nor the British could have ever foreseen. Benedict Arnold died in London in 1801 at the age of 60, a spiritually, financially, and emotionally broken man. There's a monument on the battlefield at Saratoga National Park, the site of his greatest victory, a boot statue commemorating the permanent wounds General Benedict Arnold sustained with the inscription, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. The monument bears no name, and there's good reason. Because there is a law in America passed by the Congress that you can neither chisel the name Benedict Arnold or mold it in metal. So, I mean, they took this guy right off the face of the earth. Benedict Arnold's betrayal is profound. At the same time, America would have never emerged successfully from the Revolutionary War had it not been for his innovative leadership. Here's former military historian at West Point, Major John Hall. 
Were it not for his treason, he would almost undoubtedly be one of the most celebrated American commanders of all of the American Revolution. West Point to this day would probably still be called Fort Arnold rather than West Point. In the years following his death, Arnold's wife Peggy spent her time settling all of his debts, except the biggest one of all, to America, which could never be paid. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler and to all the supporters and contributors to this show. Without their help, this isn't possible. And thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College for all the work that they do. Benedict Arnold's story, a rich, complicated, and ultimately tragic one, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler a little more magical, there were more heroes, more things to to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts, from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style. You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of, uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore. And and, uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant. And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene. The European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue. 
in the beginnings when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry. And here I came along and I had a sports car and I come with a tweed jacket and I zip into my car with a bag of ties and I go to the stores around the, around the area. And I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in. Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building, but he was investing in himself, his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too, helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style of Wall Street bankers. Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans. I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is, that is happy. You know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the, you know. So I was inspired by those worlds, you know. I was inspired, the thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin, that was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream you know, in the reality, of, you know, of, uh, I love stone houses. You know, I love Persian rugs. I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And I think I, in terms of what I was doing, is I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket. Here's a jacket. My shoulders come out here now. And, and buy it now because it's the hot new look. My jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede over patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a... What you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy. You couldn't walk into a store. No stores had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like. The things that I made, you could not buy. You couldn't find it. And they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional in the sense that they had a they weren't wild but they were they were it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life you couldn't walk into bloomingdale's you couldn't walk into Saks Fifth avenue and buy a hacking jacket now, a hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode you know in england they get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket it had a flare on the side vest so one thing is the product. The other thing is, is where it goes. A man gets dressed. He goes, he's like, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his elegant. He's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England. It, they looked great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hacking, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but... It, it didn't exist. And neither did his first product, 
The wide tie. Well, it existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building, to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe the story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love. And boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to Ralph Lauren's story. We left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in New York City, Bloomingdale's. We bring you back to the late 1960s, and a young, handsome, and confident Ralph Lauren arrives in his sports car to a meeting with Bloomingdale's, eager to strike a deal, but not too eager. He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed his sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name. It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be, this is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did. Because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub. I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties. And soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, women's wear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time as I was on the cover of Time magazine, I knew 
Time magazine was coming out, and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time magazine. And the two, the two distances of life, the fact that, that on one hand I hit the heights of one side, and the other side, the impossible thing happened on Time magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tumor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So that alone was an incredible contrast in my life. Just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and go in my career. The heights were so hard to even deal with in a funny way. So the brain tumor coming along. Uh, fortunately, it was not. It was benign. The experience of looking at my wife and my family. I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing my daughter and my son were very little at the time. We were in this big open space, and I said, "I can't believe this." I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life. I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, uh, I'm not groping in the world trying to be something. I know who I am. And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren. There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar. Remember the princess? I got her. <laughs> Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history, Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style. A style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back 
to the very people he admired as a kid. I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the, 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 the Hopalong Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a, you think of certain um, images that, that represent something that are never dying. I always like country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of, of heroes, in a way, that um, had, a, had a something to them. Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds. If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I loved this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing. Like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be. You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing on these lists? What am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing for me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain tumor and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I worked with that came at the office said, it was from another company, said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company, I was working with your people, and it's so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be. And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is Our American Stories.
And we're back with the rest of Joe Klimchak's story here on Our American Stories. At the age of seven, he knew he wanted to be a big league announcer for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Not just any announcer anywhere, the Pirates. When we last left off, he'd written a letter to the man who inspired his dream, longtime Pittsburgh Pirates announcer Art McKinnon. He was awaiting a response. Let's get back to Joe. I'm now working at Grove City College. I've graduated and, and the, the college, uh, it was a real blessing. They hired me to work as their sports information director. Met my wife of now 27 years, Jennifer, at the college. And uh, we were going back to my apartment uh, one night. And uh, this is back in the days of answering machines that flashed when there was a message. So there was a big red one, a hit play. And I can remember like it was yesterday. Joe, this is Art McKinnon. I have your letter here, your very nice letter. I'm under the weather, but I promise to write you back. Goodbye, Joe. I remember I cried when I heard that. I was like, oh my goodness, Art McKinnon has called me, Joey Klimchak, up here in Grove City, Pennsylvania, uh, and he's going to write me back. And I, I remember turning to Jen, I said, that's the crack in the door I needed. Somehow, some way, one day, I'm going to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. It's going to happen. Art did write me back. He was true to his word. He wrote me back. Actually, he didn't write me back. He typed me back. It was this typewritten letter that I actually have hanging on my wall right now. And he, essentially, the letter said, appreciate your kind comments and uh, you feel you, you appear very qualified to do public address but uh, my connections aren't what they once used to be and I really can't help you um, but don't pass up on any bets work hard and, and, and essentially saying not in so many words best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball that's kind of I, I felt like it was, it was the same thing from Artie would say I can't help you but but thanks for writing and, and good luck and I was like ah oh. again I, I felt a little crushed again but uh, was not going to be deterred, kept pushing. I wrote Art back again, and I said, Art, thank you so much for the letter. And I'm not a pushy guy, but I got a little pushy with Art in a way. I said, Art, is there any way that I can actually watch you do public address for an inning during a Sunday game? I actually picked out the game, September 20th, Pirates against the Phillies, 1992. Can I show up at the ballpark and watch you do public address? Didn't know what he would say. He wrote me back, received your letter, don't buy tickets, report to press gate A, and I'll see you on September 20th. I was like, wow, this is great. So Jennifer and I show up that day. It was a beautiful day. I remember Mickey Morandini, the Phillies, turned a triple play that day. I remember everything about that day. It was only for six outs, but it was amazing. I felt like it was, you know, just, it was out of body. I was on cloud nine. But those six outs came and went. He turned around. He shook my hand. He said, thank you. Walked me out the door. And, and then Tim DeBacco, who's the regular announcer, he was there, shook his hand. He said, nice to meet you. And he said, Good luck. And next thing you know, I'm out in section 600 whatever, sitting there with Jennifer saying, well, okay, that was great and all, but I made some good contacts, I suppose, but I'm really not there. I haven't got my big break yet. yet. I, I, I was still waiting. I have not gotten my big break yet. So I was still a little frustrated. But my big break did finally come months later. I'm working at Grove City College, sports information director. It's lunch break and I was gonna head down to get a sandwich on Main Street. And I turn on an AM radio station, a small Mercer County radio station, WPIC, and the announcer is Dave Hanahan, and he comes on the air, and why he read this announcement, I have no idea. This is Mercer County, this is like 60, 70 miles north of Pittsburgh, but he read this. He said that the Pirates have decided to, this upcoming season, have high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. And the first one was gonna be 
I believe it was like May 16th. I remember the two teams. It was going to be Greater Latrobe against Derry. And I heard that, and then instantly I was like, oh my goodness, light bulb went off. I'm not going to get a sandwich today. I'm going to double back to my office. This was before cell phones. So I got to my office phone, called the Pirates, obviously thinking like they needed an announcer for these games. So it took a long time to find the person in charge. Finally, they got on the line. They said, we actually hadn't even considered having an announcer for those games. Since you're interested, sure, we'll, we'll listen to a tape. Got to the production studio. Of course, I, I'd memorized the scripts inside and out, knew all the formatics and everything, the pauses, the inflections. The lady's name was Jackie. She called me back the next day. She said, Joe, we heard your tape. And if you're willing to work for free, congratulations. You are the announcer of our high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. I was like, wow, that's great. I'll see you there on May 16th. I'll show up. I can't wait to do this. Um, so that was a big break for me. That, that was huge. I mean, uh, you know, I would have done anything for free. I would have swept the floors for free. But the chance to announce in the big league ballpark, that was, that was amazing. I'm in the same booth, not just in the booth now, but I'm at Art McKinnon's microphone. That was crazy. Announcing in a stadium with 60,000 seats, never mind that only 60 of them were full for my games, but it was still a great experience. I did that for, uh, for a year. Months later, the Pirates gave me a call and they let me know that the Pirates are going to be soon having an audition for the backup public address announcer position. Art McKinnon is now too old to be the backup PA announcer. So they asked me if I'd be interested in showing up. They knew that I'd written those letters years ago. They knew that I was a high school announcer. They expected that I would be interested in it. And obviously I was. They said, sure, I'd love I'd loved that. So I showed up uh, for this audition, hoping it'd just be me and a couple other people. But it was me and eight other people. And they were all people from the Pittsburgh media. And I was like, oh, no. So on paper, I really had no chance at winning this audition. I was a kid just a couple years out of college. These were all seasoned professionals. They probably actually handpicked these people to come in. These are guys I've been, and, and actually there was one lady, too, that I've been listening to and watching for years. So we're all assembled, nine people auditioning to become the backup public address announcer for the Pirates. They take us up to the booth one by one. Got to be my turn. And uh, they said, OK, Joe, here, here's your first announcement. It's, it's the crowd control announcement. And I actually said, I, I don't need this script. I've, I actually, I know that one by heart. So I opened up the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, we remind you, please do not go onto the field or in any way interfere with baseball still in play or throw objects of any kind. So I knew that one by heart. Did it. It went well. I actually knew that one backward. I knew that one backward. Play and still baseballs with interfere, weigh any in or field the two on go, not do please, you remind we, gentlemen and ladies. It was crazy. Like when you, when you want something that bad, you get a little freakish about it. And I was freakish about getting this job. This is a week after the audition. And my director came over and said, Joe, congratulations. You won the audition. You're now the backup public address announcer of the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was huge. I, I was excited. I was like, wow, OK, I, I finally did it. Um, but I'm just the backup. And the, when you're the backup, you don't get many games. So I got my first game. They actually gave me my first game. Usually, I would, I would only get a game when Tim can't make the game. He'd have to be sick or have some kind of family emergency. But they gave me my first game, May 26, 1994. Again, remember, like it was yesterday, it was a 13-inning game. Pirates won 11-10 over the Mets. And it was, it was just, it was just, ah, it was a dream come true for me. The next season I worked three games, but after seven seasons as the backup public address announcer, I'd only done seven games. It's the late 90s now, and they were rolling over 2000, and they're building PNC Park. And they opened it up in 2001, and I went to my director and I said, Eric, I'm obviously as the backup PA announcer, not working many games. Is there any chance there might be a new job in the scoreboard department that I could do to work more games? There was a Pepsi bottle that sat over the Clemente wall when they opened up PNC Park. And when the Pirates hit a home run, smoke came out of the Pepsi bottle. It was my job when the Pirates hit a home run to hit the button that made the smoke come out of the Pepsi bottle for 81 home dates a year in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 
So 2005 rolls around. And what we do before every season is we have a rehearsal at the ballpark before opening day. It's an empty ballpark. It's late March. I'm in my Pepsi smoke chair. We're going to play a simulated game up on the video board. And if the Pirates hit a home run, y'all hit the button. But otherwise, I have nothing to do. I'm going through the pregame script. And I see there's a little line that says Radio MC. That means that somebody from the Pittsburgh media comes to the ballpark and they stand on the field and address the crowd and say, like they say their name, the station they're from, when their shift is. And I said, okay, it's snowing, it's late March, it's an empty ballpark, nobody's showing up for this position. I went to my director, I said, Eric, since I have nothing to do in the pregame, can I go down, can I be the radio MC today? And he looked at me and he said, do you want to do that? I said, I said, I'd love to. He said, grab a microphone. Grabbed the microphone, went down to the field, found the camera guy, and at 6.42, they cued me. And I'm a big preparation guy, but I really hadn't prepared for this. All my announcing really had been uh, not on screen. This was the first thing on the video board. So I got a camera. I didn't even know where to look, but I assumed look into the camera. And it went well. And after that rehearsal, my director tapped me on the shoulder and he said, he said, Joe, we watched you there and we thought it looked really good. And we would like you to actually, if you're interested, host one of the games we play between innings on the video board. At the end of the fourth inning, you'll leave your Pepsi smoke guy position. You'll go down to the river walk. And for, for that half inning, you'll play a game with a fan and then come back to the scoreboard room. I said, that'd be great. So now I'm actually announcing it all 81 games, one break. The next year it turned into two breaks. And then a couple years later, and now I'm doing like five inning breaks. The next year I'm doing all of pregame. And, and now I sit here 15 years later. I've been the in-game host of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I have about nine in-game breaks, all of pregame. I don't take a single day for granted. And this is 15 years later, and I'm just as excited 15 years later as I was the first day I did this job. When I walk onto the field, and the first thing I actually do, I walk onto the field, I look over my left shoulder. I do this every game to remind myself. At the top of the video board, it says, home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it's just a reminder. I'm like, it still hits me like, wow. I don't look at myself as as an announcer as much as I do, I'm more like a fan with a microphone. I want that to be my persona here. But you know, I, 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 I treat every day like it's opening day because I feel like it's opening day. I'm that excited. And what a story, Joe Klimchak's story. And it wouldn't have happened if his dad hadn't taken him to a ballpark. So you dads out there who think you're not making a difference spending time with your kids. Well, here's a classic story. And he remembers the smells. He remembers the sights. He remembers feeling this bliss. And he's not rejected once, folks, or twice or three times. By the way, he'll take any job and work for free. Remember, he's given that job for free. And he says, I would have cleaned the place for free. And he just kept at it. And he just kept showing up and asking for more. And it's everything we need to learn about how to, how to succeed and thrive and prosper in life is to show up and serve. Joe Klimchak's story a great story, and thanks to Robbie Davis for doing such a great job on this piece. Robbie spent a good part of his life in college, at Grove City College, no less. And so he knows a lot about the folks and the life of Pittsburgh and the role sports play in that great town. Joe Klimchak's story, here on Our American Story. We continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories of all kinds, and particularly the kinds that reveal character. And in this instance, 
perseverance. Today, we bring you the story of a man who dreamed of being in Major League Baseball, but not on the playing field. Here to tell his story is Joe Klimchak. The love for baseball came from attending my first Pirates game when I was seven. My dad took me to my first game at Three Rivers Stadium. It was love at first sight. It really was. I walked in, and, and it was everything about the ballpark. It was, it was the bright green turf. It was the lights. It was the sound of the organ. It was the smells of you know, nachos and, and, and popcorn and, 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 and cotton candy and peanuts. And, and you were allowed to smoke then, so it was actually the smell of cigars I liked. And then beer, all mixed up into one, so that was great. It was the big jumbotron in center field. It was sensory overload. It was just amazing. Sometimes it just clicks. Sometimes you're just like, this, this space makes me really happy. And I thought, this, is, this atmosphere is just amazing. Everybody's happy here. You know, even when the Pirates are, are losing, you know, and, and, and there were years that they, we, we, we lost more than we won, but there were obviously championship years too. But in the mid-70s, we were good. We were called the Lumber Company. I have my program from my first game. And then, of course, and then and the big thing for me was this voice then that came over the PA system that was rich and deep and beautiful. And I thought, wow, I heard that voice. And I said, I said that's it. Somehow, some way, that's the job I want. I somehow have to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. At the age of seven, I knew exactly what I wanted to do because I thought, that, this is definitely the place and that's definitely the job I want to do. His name was Art McKinnon, the public address announcer. He was a PA announcer for um, almost 50 years. It was like the tones of the Stradivarius is the way his voice has been uh, described. It, it was just so beautiful and, and I made that connection. And my dad would say that when we went to games after that, I would spend as much time in my seat twisted around watching Art on the fourth level make the announcements or watching the radio and TV guys on the third level and I was just I was locked into the announcer. First steps it was researching these guys and reading about them. My first book was Voices of the Game and I read about all the that was more about not public address but the radio announcers, the Harry Carries, the Harry Callises, the Vin Scullies. And then it was really just watching these announcers on TV doing games, sportscasters, game show hosts. I was a big Richard Dawson fan, Bob Barker fan, Alex Trebek fan. It was more about uh, the show and less about the game. It was like it was like what they did. It was their nods. It was their winks. It was their gestures. I was just absorbing all of that. The evening news, the network news, it would be Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, watching them. The little how, their voice inflection. I just study that constantly, and it would memorize their scripts. I would rehash them. I remember being in our house, and actually my two younger sisters. What a blessing it was that they would actually play along with me for at least five minutes, I believe. I was in my bedroom, they were in theirs, and I would actually do a little radio show through the heating vent of my bedroom. Just kind of say, okay, you guys, you guys sit here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple announcements, read a couple of news stories, give you the scores from last night. And I had to work extra hard because I attended Center School District in, in Beaver County in Aliquippa. And in my class of 186 students, there was only one that needed remedial speech training, and that one was me. And my mom actually saved that intermediate unit form, and I have it, um, from 1979. I was 10 years old, and I had, uh, I had a bad lisp, couldn't say my S's clearly, and it actually says reason for assignment on the sheet, poor articulation. I, I just generally garbled my words, so um, not a good start for a guy who wants to be a Major League Baseball announcer. So I had to work extra hard. The lisp thing just was terrible for me. It, it took me so many, so many uh, practice sessions, and I still didn't get. I was, I was. Uh, I remember I was in this uh, session with another girl who was in another grade. She wasn't in my grade. She was actually a little younger than me, but she got it right away. And I was like, I just couldn't do it. For me to make an S sound, I actually had to bite down, and my S's were, 
which is still kind of sloppy, but that was the best I could do until it finally clicked like a year later. Constant repetition, constant studying announcers, memorizing scripts, rehashing scripts. Art McKinnon had a drill that he would actually, he's a longtime PA announcer, he had a drill where he would read through magazine articles and if he skipped a line or had a hiccup or, or messed up, he would have to go back to the beginning and start again. I would read every article in my Sports Illustrated magazines. And when I read through all those, I grabbed my mom's Woman's Days and Family Circles, and I read all those out loud. So again, I just wanted to get as much repetition as I could because somehow, someway, you know, I wanted to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. So I, I, I'm at Grove City College and majoring in communications. I'm on the radio station staff, and I, I kind of carried that passion for announcing to college because I wanted to get as much experience now that I could there. And with the radio station, I became the sports director, the news director. I hosted a morning show. Um, they had a production studio there. I was always doing announcing in that station. Spent most of my time there. Most of my time was spent there. Um, I was also the public address announcer for all the sports, not just football and basketball, but the Olympic sports too. I did PA for soccer, for volleyball, for swimming, for baseball. Um, again, gathering all the communications, announcing experience I could. That's why for me, Grove City College was a perfect fit because I was hands-on. I was able to do that from a fresh, from my freshman year for four years to do all that announcing. I collected all this great, great experience. And, and it was because of that that I was actually, I, when I was a sophomore, I said, okay, now with some real experience now, now I think it's time to let the Pirates know that I'm interested in, in, in working for them. Because... I know in a couple of years it'll be time to graduate, and, and I would love to roll right into a big league announcing job, but those jobs don't come open very often. So I remember writing them a letter, and at this time now, uh, Art McKinnon, the longtime PA announcer who I heard at the age of seven, he was the backup public address announcer now. He was the backup because he was too old. He was in his 80s. Tim DeBacco was the regular announcer. Art was doing the game on, games on Sundays. Tim was doing uh, every other game. But I decided to write a letter to the Pirates and say, Pirates, Dear Pirates, my name's Joe. I've collected all this announcing experience. I know you have a regular public address announcer and a backup public address announcer, but I really think, I really, really think you need a backup to the backup public address announcer. That's what you need, because just in the, in the event that Tim and Art can't work a game, you need somebody reliable to fall back on. And I'm your man because I've been listening to these guys for years, memorizing their scripts inside and out. Would you please hire me? Or at least give me a listen or keep me on the list. So a couple weeks later, they wrote me back. It was like, no, we thank you for your interest, but we uh, have two announcers already. We don't need a backup to the backup announcer. And I remember the last line actually saved the rejection letter. It said, best of luck in your efforts to work in baseball. And I was like, ah. Oh. For me, that sounded like a crushing line because all, all my life, all I wanted to do was work for the Pirates. It almost sounded like, uh, no thanks and, and, and good luck try somewhere else. We don't have any interest in, in you. But of course, I was uh, obsessed with getting this job, so I wrote them another letter. I said, no, you really need to hire me. You really, really, I, I did detail all my experience. I went into more detail, and they sent me another rejection letter saying, no, we really, we really thank you. Best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. So I was crushed. Two rejection letters now. But I was going to be persistent. I was going to keep trying. I was going to keep going after this. So what I decided to do is actually write a letter to Art McKinnon himself. I wrote to the 85-year-old backup public address announcer, longtime PA legend announcer, Art McKinnon. And I said, Art, I really appreciate what you do. You're, you're, you're amazing. You inspired me to do, to do this. I heard your voice at the age of seven, and I said, that's the job I want. Um, is there any chance that you can work me somehow into the organization. I've tried through the Pirates. They sent me some rejection letters. I would love to get on a list of announcers, or if you can give me any guidance, any, any help whatsoever, I'd appreciate it.
And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this remarkable story of perseverance. We learn early that he didn't have the talent for this, certainly not naturally. He had a lisp. And if you've ever seen the movie The Natural, and again, he's not a natural. And the movie The Natural, a great baseball movie with Robert Duvall and with uh, Robert Redford, Bernard Malamud's classic novel. It was all about a guy who had everything come easy to him and how he squandered it through a, a couple of mistakes. This guy... Boy, he had to stick at it and stick at it and stick at it. When we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story of perseverance and persistence, overcoming objections and rejection. If you've got a story like this in your family, in your community, and that's one of a character and overcoming obstacles, of overcoming objections and setbacks, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We continue with Joe Klimchak's story, a great Pittsburgh story, a great baseball story, after these commercial messages. 